Well, good morning. I love that song. Uh, I like the line that says that the Lord is our refuge. Uh, He is the one we can turn to in time of trouble. He is the one who guides us and shepherds us and leads us. And he is the one we are here to honor and worship and glorify today. Thank you to our praise team for leading us in worship. And again, it sets the tone for what we want to look at in the Word of God. So let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And we will be moving around a little bit today in the text. And just want to give you a heads up on that. I think it's important at times for us to be able to do that. And uh, I'm kind of old-fashioned. And so, um, you know, I like to do that in my paper Bible so that uh, I know uh, how to navigate through the scriptures. But if you have a more modern device that you use for uh, the word, uh, have at it. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 8 primarily. We're going to look at John uh, 7 and verse 53, which is the start of this passage, and then we'll work our way all the way to verse 11 of chapter 8. And so as we come to our passage for today... Uh, we're going to find one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, (laughs) and yet there is significant doubt as to whether this passage that we'll look at today is actually inspired by God. In other words, there is a legitimate question as to whether the words that we'll look at today were actually written by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or were inserted into the text by an unknown scribe. Now, if that's a bit unsettling to consider, we should actually view it as a huge blessing because we have so many ancient manuscripts of the Bible that help us to draw such a conclusion. The scrutinization of these manuscripts is called textual criticism. In its simplest form, textual criticism is the study of ancient handwritten manuscripts in an attempt to determine what the original reading was. So as you can imagine, this is an arduous practice, and it's only necessary because God in his providence has chosen not to preserve the original writings of the Bible. At least, we don't know where they're at. But that being said, we have thousands and thousands of reliable copies. And so here's how this would work. Paul, let's use him for an example, the great apostle Paul, would write a letter Uh, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he would write a letter to a church. Let's just take, for example, the church at Philippi. The Apostle Paul, when he was in prison in Rome, would write a letter to the church at Philippi. It would be delivered, hand-delivered, by someone to take it to the elders of the church at the church at Philippi, and they would read it to the congregation. After they would read it to the congregation because it was apostolic and because it was from the Apostle Paul, it would then be copied and sent to the other local churches in the area. And so you can kind of see how this happens. So there was the original letter that the Apostle Paul would write, and then there would be copies of that letter by scribes who would very carefully record the same exact words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, but it would be delivered to the church at Thessalonica and the church at Colossae and other local churches because it was apostolic. And so this is how it would happen. 
So it was common for there to be copies of the original that would be distributed among the people. Now, just to give you an idea of the magnitude of this, there are approximately 5,800 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, which was the original language in which the New Testament was written. But on top of all of the Greek manuscripts, there are around 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 9,300 manuscripts in other languages. And so, as I said, knowing this is so reassuring to us because there is great commonality and textual unity in the volumes of manuscripts that have been found over the years. But because various scribes were involved in the process of copying the original writings, there are some slight differences in the various manuscripts. And so not all of the manuscripts are all the same. For instance, if you have a King James or a New King James version of the Bible with you today, this section that we're going to examine today is included in your Bible without any notation. And the reason is because the King James and the New King James versions of the Bible were translated from what is known as the Texas Receptus. The Texas Receptus was a comprehensive manuscript of the Bible that was compiled by a man by the name of Erasmus in the 1500s A.D. And so Erasmus took the limited number of manuscripts that he had access to and compiled them into one giant copy of the Bible. But since that time, much older manuscripts have been found and are, and are the basis uh, for the newer translations like the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version of the Bible. But the comforting thing is that all of the manuscripts, both younger and older, are quite similar. Speaking of the recently found older manuscripts, if we are able to still go to Israel in November, we're going to go to the Qumran cave region that's down near the Dead Sea, and we will explore the site of the largest discovery of these older biblical manuscripts. This was a major discovery back in 1947, and they are appropriately called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And many of these manuscripts date all the way back to the first century, some as far back as A.D. 68. So this finding gives us tremendous confidence in the reliability of the Old Testament manuscripts, since there were minimal differences between the manuscripts that had been previously discovered and the ones that were found in Qumran. This is a clear testament to the way that God has preserved his word down through the centuries protecting it from extinction, guarding it against significant error. But if you're like me and you're inquisitive, you wonder why God wouldn't have preserved the original writings. Do you ever wonder that? I think if we're honest, we ask that question. And maybe he has, but we don't know where they're at. And if we did have the original writings, and I've thought a lot about this, and I've been over to the Holy Land, and I've seen how they worship things rather than the God of the things. If we did have the original writings, man would most likely worship the documents rather than the one who authored the documents. And so this is where faith 
and evidence collide. Because of textual criticism, we can have complete confidence that what we have before us is the inspired, authoritative Word of God. God has preserved His Word despite the desires of evil men to destroy it over the centuries. And so I hope that little bit of history is helpful for you as we come to our passage for today. While this section was contained in many of the more recently recorded manuscripts, it was not included in the older manuscripts, which are considered more reliable. And so, as I said originally, it's believed that this story of the adulterous woman was true. All of the church fathers accepted it as true, but it may have been added to the pages of Scripture by an overzealous scribe. Ultimately, we do not know, but that is why this section is bracketed in the newer translations, because it's not found in the older manuscripts of the Bible. But we want to take a look at it today because it helps to teach us about grace and compassion and forgiveness. And this is what Jesus was all about. And this is what we should be all about. So let me read the text to you, and then we're going to take a look at it in greater detail. So in verse 53 of John chapter 7, that section concludes by saying, everyone went to his home. Then verse 1 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, it's commanded for us to stone such women. What then do you say? Very interesting. And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped back down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. One of the most famous accounts recorded for us in the Bible. And so there's a lot here to consider. There's a lot here that I think will help us as we look at this. We're going to find three reminders here about Jesus as we take a look at this in detail this morning. And the first is that Jesus was always approachable in his relationships. Jesus was always approachable in his relationships. Again, verse 53, everyone went to his home, uh, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. So assuming that this account is true, and we have no reason to believe that it isn't, it is 
most likely misplaced here in the chronology of the text because it seems to break the flow from chapter 7, verse 52 to chapter 8 and verse 12. Some translations even have this story in the book of Luke. But nevertheless, when this encounter with the adulterous woman occurs, Jesus is evidently in Jerusalem, and he goes across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem. Now, again, just a quick geography lesson here. So let's just say over here is the Temple Mount area, okay? So it's at the pinnacle on Mount Moriah, at the pinnacle of Jerusalem. And so slanting down from the, the Temple Mount area goes down into what is called the Kidron Valley. And then down in the Kidron Valley was where the Garden of Gethsemane is at. So down into the Kidron Valley and then up the slope to the top of what's called the Mount of Olives. So over here is the Mount of Olives. Over here is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they are staring at one another. Okay. So Jesus is not far from the temple. He's, he's gone down through the Kidron Valley, through the Garden of Gethsemane, up the slope. He's now at the top of the Mount of Olives. Okay? On the backside of the Mount of Olives is the town where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, which was Bethany. So he could have stayed in Bethany. We're not sure, but he's at the Mount of Olives. So we're not sure exactly where he stayed overnight. Perhaps he slept under a tree. Perhaps he went to his friend's house. But as the story goes, he, he went back to the temple the next morning and he begins to teach the people. There's no doubting that Jesus was relational and approachable. He was constantly with people. And if we want to be like Jesus, we too must be concerned for people and be with people. Look, I get it. Some people will burn us. Maybe someone in our family. Maybe someone that was close to us at one time. Uh, who knows? People will be people, and that's how it goes. But we serve God by serving others. And so we have to be in the lives of people. And Jesus certainly was a model of that. So this takes us then to the second reminder about Jesus, and it is that he was always wise in his practice. Jesus was always wise in his practice. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped back down and he wrote on the ground. Amazing. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's interrupted by some scribes and Pharisees who are looking to grandstand in front of the crowd and play gotcha with Jesus. But Jesus is much too wise to take the bait. The scribes were the so-called experts of the technicalities of the law. They worked closely with the Pharisees, and together they were about as legalistic as you can possibly get. 
They didn't appear to be all concerned about people or the spirit of the law, just the technicalities of the law. Only the letter of the law were they concerned about. The scribes and the Pharisees made themselves out to be the watchdog for the law. And so with that in mind, Jesus had his thoughts about the scribes and the Pharisees. So I want to take you to Mark chapter 12 real quick, and we'll just see what Jesus has to say about these people. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. Mark 12 and verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Well, it seems like an understatement, but the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't stand Jesus. And to be honest with you, Jesus had no regard for the scribes and the Pharisees. It was the very thing that he hated the most. People who would fake it and act like they're religious when inside there's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, you remember the old uh, comparison that Jesus makes with the Pharisees, and he says that they're like whitewashed sepulchers. You know, if you go out to the someone's gravesite, you'll see a tombstone. Oh, the tombstone has been whitewashed. Oh, it looks absolutely beautiful. Sparkles in the sun, but there's nothing but dead man's bones in the grave. And that's how Jesus viewed the Pharisees. He viewed the scribes in the same way. The scribes were the type of people that wanted to sit in the front row because they're the legal experts. Some of them referred to the scribes as lawyers. They were, the, they, they were sort of like the people that would police the law. They would uh, be able to resolve the technicalities of the law. If somebody had some sort of a dispute, they would go to the scribes, and the scribes would say, well, according to uh, our understanding of the law, this is what should happen in this particular case. Jesus had no room for these kind of people. In fact, these people are the ones who caused Jesus the greatest consternation in his public ministry, and these are the people that Jesus repelled and spoke about and tried to warn the people about. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they make this huge scene. They drag this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They drag her through the crowds, and we don't know how many people were there listening to Jesus at the time, hundreds perhaps, but they drop her right in front of Jesus while he's teaching. So picture this. Jesus is teaching the people. There are all these people. The crowds of people are gathered around Jesus, and unbeknownst to anyone there, the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they drop her right in front of Jesus. And then they say to Jesus, the law says that we're to stone her to death for committing adultery. What do you say? It says here they were testing Jesus in hopes that they could nail him with contradicting the law. They obviously knew of Jesus' compassion for sinners, 
And so they bait the hook to see if he'll bite. The Pharisees are feeling good about this. They've got Jesus right where they want him. They got him in a corner because it is true that the seventh commandment forbids adultery. And Leviticus 20 and verse 10 gives the penalty for those who practice adultery. Leviticus 20.10 says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And they would do that by stoning. So you see how this is all tying together. They would do that by stoning with the one who caught the people in adultery throwing the first stone. So in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, the ball is now in Jesus' court. They believe that they have presented a rock-solid case, an impossible scenario for Jesus to unravel, and I'm sure that all the people are in suspense waiting for Jesus to respond. But before we look at the response, let, let's, let's analyze this a little bit. First, where's the man? Why did they just drag the woman before Jesus? This is obviously a setup of epic proportions. It's very likely that this whole situation was created and contrived by the scribes and the Pharisees. We see their evil intent. They perhaps even hired the man to seduce the woman into having this sexual encounter. It's a huge setup. Not to set up the woman, but to set up Jesus. Second, as God, Jesus is all about justice, that sin must be punished, but he's also all about mercy and forgiveness. And so on the justice side of this, Paul will later write to the church at Rome, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's Romans 2 and verse 12. And then Paul would say, for the law brings about wrath. That's Romans chapter 4 and verse 15. And so how can all this be reconciled? All this is happening in real time. Do you ever have a situation that you have been thrust into? Now, it's one thing for us to be able to think ahead if we encounter a situation. I do this all the time. I do this all the time. I think ahead of the possible situations that could come my way, and I think about how I'm going to respond if these things happen. Do you ever do this? Okay. But when something happens that we don't have time to pre-think about, we have to think on the spot. When we think on the spot... It takes us back to all the things that we have learned and been taught and we know from the Bible. But it's a lot harder to be thrust into a situation to have to think on the spot than to have that time to be able to think about it ahead of time. And so here we have this situation. The scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman in. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. All the people are stunned they're there to listen to Jesus, but now they have this encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees, and whether you like it or not, the scribes and the Pharisees carried a lot of weight in that society. They come in with their robes, and it's like this processional, and they come in and they drop the woman in front of Jesus, and they say, okay, Jesus, <laughs> what do you say? Because we caught her in the act of adultery. She's supposed to be stoned. What do you say about that, Jesus? As all these men in all this 
uh, royal garb stand around like this. And so Jesus does what we probably would not do. He decides to write in the dirt. This is beautiful. This is amazing. When we think about Paul writing all of this about sin, sin deserves God's wrath, right? Right? We are sinners and deserve the wrath of God. We deserve eternal damnation, punishment for sinning against holy God and violating the law of God. That is not disputed. That is what, the recognition of that is what drives us to Christ to save us from our sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of the awfulness of our sin and drives us to Christ. Sin deserves God's wrath, but while Jesus is all about justice, he's also all about mercy and forgiveness. Again, we look at Paul, and, and he answers this apparent conundrum in Romans 8 and verse 3 when he says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There's more to this than meets the eye. Jesus is all about justice. The law was not bad because God was the giver of the law. And so Jesus would never disobey the law because he's the author of the law. Now turn with me back to Matthew chapter 5. I said we'd hit a couple of passages here, but I, I want to read this to you. Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and it's at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you know the Sermon on the Mount, this was preached on the Mount of Beatitudes. The first uh, 11 verses are all of the Beatitudes. And then uh, Jesus is preaching to the people, and he gets to verse 17. Okay? Verse 17, this is in Jesus' public ministry. He's sharing uh, with the people. He's seated uh, as he shares on the rocks, on the Mount of Beatitudes. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law, as, or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. They think they've got him. I mean, they think they've got Jesus nailed. What are you going to do? She's been caught in adultery, and you know what the law says, Jesus. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, and so his filter is much different than the scribes and the Pharisees who he condemns. Jesus came to do what the law could not do. Jesus came to die in the place of sinners. Jesus came to be the propitiation of the Father's wrath against sin. And by God's grace through faith in him, 
He provides a way of pardon and a way of salvation for sinners who deserve the wrath of God, sinners like us. And so, yes, Jesus was all about justice. The price for sin needed to be paid. But he was also all about grace and mercy and forgiveness, which culminates in him providing a way of salvation for sinners. So imagine the emotions of this woman. Her sin has been publicly exposed, and she is no doubt terrified about what was going to happen to her. She knew what the law said, that those who commit the act of adultery are to be stoned. And so as everyone awaits Jesus' response, he says nothing. Kneels down by her in compassion toward her, and he begins to use his finger to write something in the dirt. You know, compassion seems to have gotten lost in society. I have so many great memories of my growing up years, my time in the church. I love the fact that our grandkids love to come to church. I grew up in the church. I've talked about this a lot. Just because you grow up in the church doesn't mean you know Christ. I mean, literally, it wasn't until I was 15 or 16 years of age that the Lord got a hold of my life and the Spirit convicted me of my sin. I was a good church kid. So I grew up in the church. The church was a huge part of my family's life, a huge part of my life. I knew nothing else. But one of the things that I had such a hard time rec reconciling, even as a kid, was the, the practice of shaming in the church. For instance, over the course of my 20-plus years in the church I, I grew up in, a, a few young girls had fallen into sin and they'd gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And in those cases, those young girls were paraded up in front of the church to serve as a deterrent to other girls from following down the same path of immorality. Some of them were sent away out of state for months and months and months to homes for expectant girls until such a time as they had the baby and given it up for adoption and then they could return. All very pharisaical. And this is at least in part what we see here in this situation. The scribes and the Pharisees have no compassion on this woman who has fallen into sin. And you know me and you know where I'm at on sin. We are never to sweep sin under the rug, ever. But there's a way to address sin to lovingly spur someone on to repentance. A short definition of compassion is to have mercy or to feel sympathy or to have pity. And there's no mistaking that God is a God of compassion. Psalm 86 and verse 15 says that God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And like all of God's attributes, his compassion is infinite. It's eternal. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. And as God, Jesus exemplified all the same attributes as the Father, including his compassion. For instance, later in John 11, we'll see Jesus' heartfelt compassion for his friends weeping at the grave of Lazarus. 
He healed the lame and he restored sight to the blind out of compassion. He was compassionate toward those who had been mistreated and abused by the Pharisees. And he shows compassion toward this woman, even though she'd been caught in sin and deserved the punishment set forth in the law. Jesus knew this was a setup. He understood it. This woman was merely a pawn in the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote in the dirt? I've been thinking about this all week. I'd love to make something really cool up and say, this is what he wrote. I have no idea what he wrote, but it's interesting, isn't it? They think they got him. They think they got him. He's nailed. What are you going to do now? What do you say about this, Jesus? He delays his response, and he shows compassion to this woman. And he writes something in the dirt. I'm sure the Pharisees are grinning ear to ear. They think they've got him. They just can't wait to find out how this is going to go down. He leans down to be with her. Not the guys dressed in the robes, not the people who think they're really something, but this woman who had committed adultery and is laying in front of him. And he gets down right by her. And in a show of compassion, he starts to write with his finger in the dirt. I'd love to know what he wrote, but we're not told here. The scribes and the Pharisees persist. They ask him, and he stands back up, and he says, he who was without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. You know, it's important to notice that Jesus doesn't deny the woman's sin or her guilt. He just puts this back on her accusers. It's a great show of compassion for this woman and a rebuke to these scribes and these Pharisees. And upon making that statement, he stoops back down in compassion, identifying with this woman, and he finishes up whatever he was writing in the dirt. This is a clear and very real and visible picture that Jesus loves sinners. And he identifies more with sinners than he does with these self-righteous, fake religious people. Jesus could not stand the fakes. He knew their hearts. He knew who they were. He knew what they were about. And he couldn't stand it. Jesus loves sinners. And this brings us to the third reminder about Jesus, and it's that Jesus was always righteous in his judgment. Jesus was always righteous in his judgment. Look at verse 9. When they heard it, after Jesus had said, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, if you are without sin, verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go now 
and sin no more. And so at, unlike us, Jesus always does the right thing the right way. So Jesus handles this situation with great compassion without dismissing the law and minimizing sin. It says here that after Jesus calls them out, they start to file out one by one, leaving the woman behind with Jesus. You see, it wasn't about the woman. It wasn't about her. And I'm not sure what the significance here is that the older ones led the parade out of the temple. But we can't help but speculate. Perhaps because the older ones had more experience with sin, in other words, because they had lived longer than the others, and they obviously had committed more sin, maybe they had more of a sensitive conscience and filed out of the area, and the other people followed behind them. But that could go the other way, too, because sometimes it seems the more we commit sin, the more desensitized to sin that we become. So I'm not sure. Maybe it was a show of maturity that they somehow were compassionate They saw how Jesus was compassionate. They felt compassion on this woman. Maybe they were feeling a sense of guilt because they knew their plan from the start was to set up Jesus. And when they realized that he didn't take the bait, they left with their tails between their legs. We just don't know, but they all file out. The older ones led the parade. They all file out. And Jesus is alone with this woman in the temple courts. And so in our mind's eyes, we picture this, it's at this time that they both stand to their feet and Jesus asks, where did they all go? Did any of them condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And here is where we find her acknowledgement of her sin and her turning to Jesus in faith. She calls Jesus Lord, Master, Kyrios in the Greek. This is the title given to the Messiah, She had fallen at the feet of the Messiah and believed in him. And as a result, Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. Go from here and sin no more. You see, it's one thing to have acknowledged her sin by calling Jesus Lord, but it's quite another to show the fruit of repentance. That's what Jesus calls for here from this woman. Go and sin no more. Repentance is the change of mind about our sin, and it results in a change in action. And so that's what he's calling for here from this woman. Go and sin no more. Show the fruit of your repentance. This is the first time in this account, if you've noticed, that there's any conversation with this woman. Remember, as it related to the scribes and the Pharisees, this wasn't as much about the woman as it was about Jesus. It was to trap Jesus. It didn't work. Instead, this encounter encounter led to Jesus extending forgiveness to this woman, and who knows? Maybe this woman would later be used by God throughout the rest of her life for his glory. Maybe that she would be used mightily in the in the hearts of so many people after this incident that happens in her life where she is spared from the penalty of the law and saved by Jesus, maybe she would then be used by God to go and to warn people about sin. Who knows? We don't know. When we become a Christian, we are no longer defined by our sin. Amen? We are no longer defined by our sin. And this woman would no longer be defined by her sin. 
She has been forgiven of her sin by Jesus in the most dramatic fashion imaginable. We are defined by our relationship with Christ. And even if we might sin egregiously after becoming a Christian, the Lord is quick to forgive when we repent of our sin. This is why we're to hold to the same standard as Jesus held to. This is why Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We are to have a heart of compassion, a heart of forgiveness. R.C. Sproul said this about this passage. Most biblical scholars do not believe that this is a text from John because it's not found in many of the oldest New Testament manuscripts. Moreover, the manuscripts that we do have the story uh, do not all agree on where it should be placed. Some manuscripts have it in other places in John, while some even have it in the Gospel of Luke. Nevertheless, Sproul says, it is an ancient story referenced in several of the earliest church fathers, and the church has long held that it records an authentic episode from the life of Christ. Thus, we agree with John Calvin that since the passage, quote, contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage, end quote. And that, I hope we have done today. What a story of Jesus and his compassion for sinners, of his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Forgive others in the same manner that Christ has forgiven you. That should be our heart. That should be our desire. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we have looked at this incredible story of your Son's compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness and this setting where the scribes and the Pharisees think they've got him, and yet Jesus in his infinite wisdom and grace teaches the people. And Lord, you have taught us today through this story, and may this resound in our hearts today, that we would be more like Jesus than the Pharisees and the scribes and the people that stood around and watched May we be gracious and compassionate, never sweeping sin under the rug, loving sinners, addressing sin as it needs to be addressed, and yet so forgiving when there is repentance. So we thank you, dear Lord. Thank you for this story. Thank you for what it has taught us today. We thank you most of all for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord, our Master. It's in his name we pray. Amen.